I call this meeting to order. If you could make your way to your seats, please. I haven't planned that. All right, good morning and happy Mother's Day to everyone. Uh, let's pray. God, thank you for today. Uh, thank you for the Lord's Day, a time that we have set aside to meet with your people and a time that we have set aside to hear from you. God, we believe that when your word speaks, you speak. And so, God, I pray that you would do that, that you would speak, that we would be changed, that you would be glorified. God, I pray as we start this a series on um, complementarianism, God, I pray that you would help us to uh, be charitable with those uh, that we disagree with. God, I pray you would help us to believe all things and hope all things, uh, even about uh, those on, on the other side of the aisle, so to say. God, I pray that uh, you would be honored by the words I speak and the thoughts we have. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um, so the handouts are coming around or have already come around. Uh, this week we are both continuing something and starting something. We're continuing the series on marriage that Dan has started uh, and what starts new is not just a new teacher, but a little bit of a shift of direction. Uh, what I've been asked to do is to lay down the theological foundations that hold up the vision of marriage that Dan presented to you. Uh, Dan has done a really good job, really good job, of introducing complementarianism, we'll talk about what that is in a little bit, uh, to you so far in this series. Uh, he's demonstrated many of the practical outworkings of this theology, complementarianism in marriage. I hope you've been helped and challenged by that. Uh, but it's necessary to uh, come behind and, and address the theological foundations that hold that vision for marriage up because... Well, one, I think we could say it's always important to, to go down deep, uh, build a foundation of theology uh, before uh, you move to the practical, what should I do, what should I do? You have to start with what is true. Um, but beyond that, these particular theological foundations are under assault today, and not just from outside of the church, but from within the church. Um, this issue is not going to go away anytime soon. You need to know it's out there. Uh, I think young people especially, you are going to come across this issue in your life. Someone will challenge you. Does the Bible really teach male leadership in a marriage and in a local church? How sure are you? Are you surprised to know that there are many people arguing that the Bible doesn't teach that? Not that the Bible is junk. The Bible is good, and the Bible doesn't teach that. Do you know how to answer them when they say this? Uh, so my main goal today 
is just to orient you to the issue, uh, to the competing perspectives. I'm going to give a big picture critique of egalitarianism, which is uh, the position that opposes complementarianism, and then begin, as much as we have time, to examine the scriptures. Uh, I really want this to make sense, so feel free to ask questions at any time. I'm going to try to remember to stop and directly ask you if you have questions or concerns. Um, but, but let me say one final word of uh, general introduction before we get to a more specific kind of introduction, and that is this, that uh, Christian virtue is not uh, possessing disgust for all of the right kinds of people or for all of the wrong kinds of people, right? So my goal here is not to give you knowledge so that you can walk out of this room uh, armed and ready to throw rocks at egalitarians. No, okay? The, the goal is to, to equip you to know what the word says so that you can embrace God's design of complementarianism as something that's beautiful and is something that's true and is something that's good. Okay, any questions before I start? All right, defining the positions. If you need a handout, you can raise your hand. Uh, complementarianism. So here's the principle. Men and women are equal in dignity, value, and personhood. And yet there are distinctions in roles. Uh, and these roles correspond to fundamental differences in masculinity and femininity. Uh, the practical outworking of this, the most immediate practical outworking of this in the word, is that men have a unique authority in the nuclear family as husbands, and a few qualified men have authority in the church family as elders or pastors. Uh, so I'll say the same thing in a different way. And this, this I'm taking from uh, Mary Cassian, who's a lady who's been writing about complementarianism for a long time. She writes this, Complementarians believe that God created male and female as complementary expressions of the image of God. Male and female are counterparts in reflecting his glory. Having two sexes expands the view. Though both sexes bear God's image fully on their own, each does so in a unique and distinct way. Male and female in relationship reflect truths about Jesus that are not reflected by male alone or female alone. Similarly, uh, essentially a complementarian is a person who believes that God created male and female to reflect complementary truths about Jesus. Uh, that's the bottom line meaning, okay? This is not about who gets to choose what you watch uh, on the TV Saturday night. Complementarians believe males were designed to shine the spotlight on Christ's relationship to the church in a way that females should not even, dare I say, cannot. And females were designed to shine the spotlight on the church's relationship to Christ in Christ's relationship to the Lord God, his Father, in ways that males should not and, again, cannot. Uh, who we are as male and female is not ultimately about us. If your greatest goal is 
self-actualization, then then none of this matters, right? But that isn't our greatest goal, or it shouldn't be, right? Our greatest goal is to image and glorify God and to know Him and enjoy Him forever. This is about testifying to the story of Jesus. Uh, So these distinct complementary expressions of the image of God, male and female, have implications for marriage, uh, for leadership in marriage, and by extension, leadership in the local church. Um, So this is why the Bible calls husbands the head within a marriage. And that that word designates, among other things, uh, authority. And we'll talk more about that later. Let me say this also. Um, the most immediate implication of complementarianism is in the home, in a nuclear family, and also in a local church. So does that mean that the theological vision of complementarianism doesn't apply to people who aren't married, and it doesn't apply to people outside of the local church? And all the people said, no. All right. Um, The distinctions in masculine and feminine roles are ordained by God as part of the created order. And I really like this wording. And they should find an echo in every human heart, regardless of if you're married or not. Any questions, comments, concerns? Okay, important question. What do we mean here by authority? This is really important. Um... If I said that God has given a unique authority to husbands and nuclear family, to a few qualified men, men in a local church as elders, uh, what do I mean by authority? Well, at the bottom, God-given authority is fundamentally God-given responsibility. In God's economy, authority is the responsibility to serve, not the right to rule. I think if we can get more specific, specifically, uh, this God-given authority to husbands as leaders of a nuclear family, to elders as leaders of a church family, here's what it means. They bear the primary responsibility to ensure the family, whether nuclear or church family, is moving in a God-glorifying direction, period. This authority means they bear the primary responsibility to ensure the family, whether nuclear family or church family, is moving in a God-glorifying direction. Now, we can get more specific than that, and we will. Uh, But everything that male headship means can be summed up under that umbrella sentence. In addition, uh, in addition to ensuring that the family is moving in a God-glorifying direction, they also have the primary responsibility to secure the well-being, spiritual, physical, emotional, social, psychological, everything else illogical, uh, of everyone under your authority. Okay? So if you, if you can think these two sentences and, and attach this definition to what I mean here when I'm talking about authority, it's going to be really helpful. 
because the world has very different ideas about what authority is, all right? Ensure the family is moving in a God-glorifying direction. Secure the well-being of everyone under that authority. Uh, in the world's mind, authority is self-promotion, right? In God's estimation, authority is centered on what everything else in humanity is supposed to be centered on. Glorifying God and loving others. It's just a, a special responsibility to do that in a group. Any questions, comments, concerns? Okay. Uh, egalitarianism, on the other side. Uh, there's the principle is that men and women are equal in dignity, value, and personhood. Notice that's the exact same wording as the beginning of the definition for complementarianism. Okay. We agree. We agree. Men and women are equal in dignity, value, and personhood. And, they would say, there are no distinctions in roles. And we'll get to later, uh, I think they would say, therefore, because there's equal dignity, value, and personhood, there are no distinctions in roles. Practically, over and against complementarianism, this means men have no unique authority in the home as husbands, and women may be elders or pastors in a local church. Uh, so in short, complementarianism, men and women are equal but different. Egalitarianism, men and women are equal and same. Role interchangeability. Uh, I think to be, to be fair also is that the more conservative egalitarianism, egalitarians would say uh, that men and women are different, even perhaps that they were made to fulfill different roles, but those roles have nothing to do with authority or leadership or submission. Okay. Because, as we'll see later, uh, I think according to their understanding, that would undercut equality and dignity, value, personhood. Any questions? Is that irritating that I keep asking you? <laughs> I'm going to do it because I like what happens, right? I say that, some of you look away. Yes. Uh, authority is the responsibility to serve, not the right to rule. Yeah. And and maybe we'll get a chance to talk more about this later. But I think one of the one of the major reasons that people in the church are um, questioning complementarianism and pushing against it is because they've seen really bad complementarianism. They've seen male leadership uh, that was exercised by males who believed that that meant I have the right to rule. So I understand. I reject that too. Good question. Thank you. Okay, next. Different kinds of egalitarians. Um, Again, I, I want to expose you to the issue, so uh, when you come across this, you don't think, I never knew such a thing existed. Why is this being hidden from me? Well, it's not. Uh, but now you'll know. Okay, so different kinds of egalitarians. Uh, and specifically, I'm focusing on those who call themselves Christians, right? Not, not 
the broader culture. All right, all liberal theologians would believe that the biblical authors commend complementarianism, but we know better now. Uh, so they believe that complementarianism is bad, it's wrong, it's not good, it's not helpful, it's not beautiful, but they're not afraid to admit the Bible teaches it uh, because they don't have a very high view of the Bible. I'll give you a couple of quotes. Uh, Kevin Giles says, The Bible is authoritative in matters of faith and conduct, but not necessarily in science or on how to order social relations, like marriage. Scripture can and does endorse social structures no longer acceptable. Uh, or Richard Hayes, this, is, this guy's a really prominent New Testament scholar. Uh, he says, quote, We must reconsider how the doctrine of creation might lead us to conclusions about the relationship between male and female that are not precisely the same as Paul's. Okay. Paul got Genesis wrong. Um, all right, well, th this is uh, at the bottom, not an issue with complementarianism. This is an issue with the Bible. Right? Uh, next, a few uh, evangelical theologians. Now, uh, I didn't put evangelical in quotes to insinuate that someone who is uh, an egalitarian can't be an evangelical. There are some uh, egalitarians who are bona fide uh, evangelicals, okay? Um, but I put evangelical in quote because evangelical has become such a, a big tent word. For example, recently there was uh, a book that came out, one of these four views books, or is anyone familiar? You've seen these? Okay, they have a four views on everything. Uh, on end times, on how to govern the church, on uh, anything you can think of, matter of doctrine. Um, I remember one of my professors in seminary said, one of the best things about heaven is we won't need any more four views books. We'll all know the truth. We'll know as we're fully known. Okay. Uh, but anyway, one recently came out that was uh, four views on homosexuality, and the introduction said that uh, in, in past decades, to have competing views on homosexuality, uh, we would have to have someone who identifies as an evangelical and bring in people who deny uh, the inspiration and authority of scripture, liberal theologians, but he said that's not true today. Today this is an intramural discussion within people within a group of people who identifies evangelicals. Some people are trying to say that I believe the Bible is true, I believe the Bible is inspired, I believe the Bible is authoritative, I just don't believe it condemns homosexuality. Okay. So, so that's why I put evangelical in quotes. And, and the other side of what I said, there are many egalitarians who say they're evangelicals who are not evangelicals. All right, a couple of categories. First, any questions? No. All right. Egalitarian? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I would, um, and I would say it's not, it's not trying to fulfill a role that's equal
because I would say the distinct roles already are equal, right? I know you didn't mean to say that, but we want to be careful with words because word me words mean things, right? Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think ultimately what it is is uh, just feeling the pressures of um, feminism, and not everything that has happened under the banner of feminism is bad or unbiblical, uh, but part of that has been um, seeing uh, submission in the home as something that is is um, oppressive, essentially. Not, not just historically it's been that way, but necessarily that is so. And so they would say for women to be equal with men, then they have to be interchangeable with men. And so, yeah, it, does that answer your question? Yeah. A loaded question, okay. I may punt, but yes, mm-hmm, that's a good question, yeah, yeah, I will. Uh, she said, when men refuse to fulfill their role, what are women to do? It's an excellent question, um, and I, if it's acceptable to you, I'd like to come back to that in a later week when when we're uh, in an area that, that that's in more immediate striking distance. Is that okay? Yeah. <laughs> that's good. I'm actually not an elder, so yeah. So Matt, Nathan, Joe, you guys are responsible that, that what I say leads the flock in a God-glorifying direction. Okay. Um, within evangelicalism, so people who profess to have a high view of the Bible. There are redemptive movement egalitarians, and uh, I, I kind of made these categories up, okay? So if you go out, just, just saying, if you go out and start talking to people, yeah, have you heard of redemptive movement egalitarians? Like, what are you talking about, okay? So these are titles that I just think are helpful. Um, they would say that the Bible... They admit the Bible commends complementarianism, but only as an accommodation to less than ideal societal norms of the first century. Okay? Uh, so they would say Paul was right to, to tell uh, wives that they should submit to husbands, but, but not because that was God's best, but that was God's best given what he had to work with, uh, first century Greco-Roman empire. Uh, and so they would compare this to what Jesus said about divorce. The Pharisees come up to Jesus, and they, they are trying to trap him. And they say, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Uh, and, and what they're referencing is this um, uh, feud within Judaism about how to interpret the law of Moses concerning divorce. And Jesus completely skips over what Moses says about divorce, and he goes all the way back to creation, uh, and he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And the Pharisees are incensed. They say, this man is stepping on Moses. And they say, 
Why did then Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, it's because of your hardness of heart that Moses allowed you to divorce. But from the beginning, it was not so. So they would say, like uh, in, in the time of Moses, there was um, a, a, a regulation on divorce that was actually an accommodation to something that was less than ideal because of men's hardness of heart. They would say, well, maybe, uh, maybe what the New Testament says about complementarianism falls in that category. So they would say, you can see a trajectory of a, prog- of a progression of ethics ac- across the Bible. Uh, like the Old Testament was less strict. So uh, supposedly on divorce, I'll get right to you. Uh, and then the New Testament they would say, has a more enlightened ethic um, on divorce. So also, uh, they would say, maybe you can see this trajectory uh, moving, becoming less and less and less and less complementarian in the Bible. And we're supposed to, after the canon is closed, we're supposed to keep that trajectory going all the way to essentially egalitarianism, even though the Bible stops short of it. I know that's a hard, that, that's uh, a little more difficult to wrap your mind around. So, any questions, comments, concerns? Well, what they would say is that the complementarianism that's commended in the New Testament is also an expression of the hardness of man's heart. It's an accommodation to man's sinfulness that we need, that we should move past. (laughs) I agree. Yeah, (laughs) I agree. I'm just, uh, uh, I don't fall in this category. But, but I, want, I want you to know it's out there. Yeah. Um, yeah, thank you. Those are good points. Any other comments, questions, concerns? In the back. No. No, they would, I think they would say that um, the societal structures of mankind are uh, less given to the free reign of man's sin. So, you know, maybe as an example, we're not living under Bronze Age warlords. We might come November, right? But um, I shouldn't have said that. (laughs) That's just distracting. That's distracting. Um, Not that man is less sinful, but that 
but that uh, according to God's common grace, the social structures we have now are um, better than what, what they were back then. I think that's what they would say. Yeah. Again, I, I'm, I'm, right now I'm not trying to critique anything. I'm just trying to, you know, make, express their viewpoint where if they were sitting in the room, they would say, yeah, he's right. That's what we believe. close. Again, I'm glad you asked that question because this, this is a hard one to get your mind around. Did y'all hear that question in the back? So the question was, so um, are, is what they're saying that the Bible is, is a living document that the meaning of it, you can't actually access the, uh, what the author intended to say and so the meaning of the text kind of changes with every generation and, and so meaning is centered in the reader and not in the text itself, kind of like people are arguing for how we should interpret the Constitution today. And uh, I don't, they're not saying that. They're not saying the Bible used to mean this, but now it means this. They're saying that, that the Bible did teach complementarianism, but it was an accommodation to a less than ideal social, pre already existing social institution that no longer exists, so, so we don't need to make that accommodation. Does that, I hope that makes sense. Yes. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> okay. Um, Should I? No. <clears throat> okay. Uh, ultimately, ultimately, now here's, here's a brief critique. Ultimately, the fundamental problem with this group is the same as, as the critique with the liberal theologians. They both say we need to progress beyond the ethics represented in the Bible. Right? So Paul, Paul did the best he could, but we know better now. It was right then, it's wrong now. Okay. Uh, and so the same thing happens. Uh, you, you, you pay lip service to the authority of the Bible, but still then you sit as judge over the Bible, and you are the one who gets to say, oh, this is, this is good, we keep this, or, oh, oh th this is bad, we need to move beyond this. So... Um, essentially, it exalts self over God as the authority on ethics. Um, furthermore, I would say uh, the New Testament is, is the culmination of God's revelation. Think about how Hebrew starts. Uh, in various times, in many ways, long ago, God spoke to us through the prophets. But in these last days... He has spoken to us in his son. There is, there is progression from Moses to Christ. There is no progression from Christ to where we are today, okay? Uh, what, what Christ did and what Christ taught represented 
the inauguration of God's ideal, the inauguration of the new creation. There, the, the Jesus is the final word. Okay? What, the, what Jesus said about divorce is the final word. What Jesus says about marriage and Jesus through the apostles that he chose himself and authorized to go and speak his word in his name, what they say is the final word for us on marriage. Yes. Right, yeah, God is unchanging, and what is good is unchanging. Jesus, uh, Doug said, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's ideal has not changed. Yeah, yeah. has not changed. That's what, that's what Jesus said in response to their question about divorce. He went to creation, uh, and he says, you know, I know what Moses says, and that's an accommodation to your hardness of heart. That was not God's new ideal. God's ideal was represented in creation and always has been that, always will be that. Yeah, thank you. Okay, final call before we move beyond this category. All right. Uh, we're not going to get very far, but that's okay. This is worth it. This is worth it. Yes, the final, yes, Jesus is the final revelation of God. Yes, yes, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, good question. So if you say Jesus is the final revelation of God, what about the apostles who chronologically taught after Jesus, died, rose, ascended? Um, so then what do we do with their teaching if Jesus was the final word? I'd say um, the apostles taught with the authority of Jesus. What the apostles taught was part of the final word of Jesus. They are, how does Paul start his letters? I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. These, these are men that Jesus selected and Jesus authorized, go in my name, speak my words. Remember, the Holy Spirit will, will bring to remembrance everything that I have taught you and do it in the authority of my name. And I think the apostles recognized that uh, especially when they wrote scripture, they were doing this. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, do you not recognize that what I am writing to you is a command of the Lord? That is the Lord Jesus. Yeah. So, so the apostles' ministry fits under the umbrella of uh, Jesus as final revelation to man. Does that answer your question? Phil, did you have...
Yeah, I agree that, that ultimately the issue is, is the authority of the Bible. That can, you know, there can be a lot of different facets of, of what the Bible's authority means. And I think the one that's particularly pertinent for this camp would be, um, is, the, is the Bible trans-cultural, trans-generational, you know, uh, things like that, which you said. Yeah, so thank you for bringing that up. All right, I'm not asking for questions, I'm just going. <laughs> I, I appreciate your questions, though. You'll get another chance. So if you have another one, just sit on it for a little bit. Finally, uh, I call these Bible-based egalitarians. Um, you, or you could call them exegetical egalitarians. They are different in that uh, they believe that the Bible does not commend complementarianism. Never did, never will. People have just been misinterpreting, misapplying the Bible for all these years. Um, so we would share with them, you know, according to what they would say, we would share with them a high view of the Bible's inspiration and authority. Uh, and this is mainly is the perspective that I'll interact with. Because I think, um, as Phil helpfully pointed out, if, if you're set on the Bible as inspired and authoritative, then, then you're ready, you're equipped to uh, filter through the arguments of these other camps. But what about this camp? who says, I'm not egalitarian in spite of the Bible, I am egalitarian because of the Bible. Uh, and you're just misreading your Bible because of a hangover from traditional, unbiblical uh, notions of, of patriarchy that humanity is just now starting to get over. Questions? Yeah, let me, I'll lay my cards down. I don't believe this. Okay. Um, before we go on, I think it is a really, really important observation. If you, if you look across the spectrum of egalitarianism, really important to notice that the majority of egalitarians believe that the Bible teaches complementarianism. Did you catch that? The majority of egalitarians believe that the Bible teaches complementarianism. That was the first line in, in my definition of, of those first two camps. Again, they just don't believe it, it's right for us to apply that biblical teaching today. Let me say another quick word um, to help you when you go out to not to do a foot and mouth thing, okay? Uh, mostly the people who are saying I'm an egalitarian are in one of the last two groups, okay? Uh, more liberal theologians who have punted the Bible's authority and inspiration kind of altogether, they're, they don't care to engage in this discussion, right? Uh, they, they don't need to discuss with us what the Bible actually teaches. 
they're like, yeah, that, that, that's fine. The Bible teaches that, then the Bible's wrong. You know, the Bible was written by God, but also written by Paul, and the good parts were written by God, and the bad parts, like complementarianism, were written by Paul. You know, no problem. So, so uh, liberal theologians are not out waving the flag, I'm an egalitarian, okay? Um, they, they, they just don't need to enter into debate any, anymore. Um, so, most of the people who wear the badge egalitarian will belong to one of the latter two categories, even though all other liberal theologians are egalitarian in their theology. Doug. Yeah. Right, right. So, uh, yeah. I can't repeat that for you in the back because uh, I don't know as much about Doug. Uh, or as much as Doug about the issue that he just talked about. Um, but I think what they would say then is, as you were saying, the, the problem with saying that all of human history is uh, just full of patriarchy and oppression to women, you're saying there are plenty of examples throughout history where that hasn't been the case. Uh, right, sure. I, I think um, what they would say is that... Uh, they would focus on what you said, Western civilization, because that's been the main culture in which the Bible has been studied and interpreted. Yeah, well, well, not um, again. Some of them say we're not we're not trying to base this argument in any cultural anything. We're basing our arguments in the Bible. Yeah, so um, yeah, a lot of egalitarians would agree with you there. Yeah. They just disagree about what it means. Um, so again, uh, a lot of what I'm saying um, I'm not I, I think uh, I want to be fair to egalitarians. That doesn't mean I don't think they're wrong. I think it's very wrong. But, but I, I, I want to be uh, charitable and, and present their viewpoint in a way that, that if they were in the room, they would say, yes, that's what we believe. Okay. But that doesn't exclude a strong critique. Okay. And I intend to uh, critique with strength. Okay, uh, the historic position of the church. Egalitarianism is a historic novelty. Um, You don't necessarily have to attach a value judgment to that statement, uh, but that is a historical fact. Um, 
It is the result of the influence of the feminist movement on the church. I think egalitarians would agree with that. They would just say that's a good thing. Um, again, I said not, not everything under the, under the feminist movement is bad or even unbiblical. Um, just a historical background, in the 1970s and 80s uh, are, is when some theologians began arguing for biblical feminism. Uh, so, therefore, the term complementarianism was coined in response to that, right? So, Calvin wasn't saying, I'm a complementarian. Calvin was a complementarian, all right? But the term wasn't coined until about 30 years ago uh, as, as a response, as a way to distinguish what the Bible teaches over and against uh, what these biblical feminists were arguing as far as I can tell, uh, no one throughout church history has argued the Bible teaches egalitarianism in home and church until the mid-late 20th century. Again, this his that historical reality does not by itself make the case for complementarianism. It should, I think, make one extremely circumspect to consider views that grade against um, 2,000 years of church history. Also, historically, egalitarianism is a slippery slope. Uh, there are some egalitarians today who have not slid down that slope. But historically, absolutely, the trailblazers of egalitarianism uh, were the liberal Protestant denominations. And, and usually the first expression of giving up the authority and inspiration of the Bible was in the 1950s and 60s um, ordaining women as pastors. And you can look at every denomination that did that in the 50s and 60s and uh, where they are now, um, it's, it's unquestionably related. So again, e egalitarians would push against this and say, uh, it's not necessarily a slippery slope. I think that it is. But uh, in the spirit of charity, then, I only put historically that has been the case, that egalitarian is a slippery slope. All right, any questions before we move on? Are you sure you don't have any questions? can't start this next point with five minutes left. It's so important. Um, in that case, let me read you a quote to uh, support what I just said about historically egalitarianism is a slippery slope. Um, and this is from a book that uh, is popularly titled Maybe you want to give it to someone from Mother's Day this year. Evangelical Feminism, A New Path to Liberalism by Wayne Grudem. Okay, At bookstores now. Makes a great Mother's Day gift. Here's what he says. <laughs> the pioneers of evangelical feminism are liberal denominations. A number of the arguments now being used by evangelical egalitarians, so not, not liberal, 
but a number of the arguments now being used by evangelical egalitarians are the very same ones used by these liberal denominations when they were approving the ordination of women. Many of the current leaders of the egalitarian movement either advocate positions that undermine the authority of Scripture or at least advertise and promote books that undermine the authority of Scripture and lead believers toward liberalism. And soon the same methods of evading the teachings of Scripture on manhood and womanhood will be used once again by those who advocate the moral legitimacy of homosexuality. This, this was written uh, not in 2016, 2006. All right, so um, fulfilled non-prophetic statement about the future. Prediction, fulfilled prediction. Uh, the common denominator in all of this is a persistent undermining of the authority of Scripture in our lives. And thus my conclusion, here's the thesis of his book, thus my conclusion at the end of this study that evangelical feminism is relentlessly leading Christians down the path to theological liberalism. Now, as explained at the beginning of this book, I am not saying that all egalitarians are liberals or that all egalitarians are moving toward liberalism. But I am saying that the arguments used by egalitarians actually undermine the authority of Scripture again and again, and in so doing, they are leading the church step by step toward liberalism. Today, some egalitarians have only taken one step in that direction and have gone no further. But a number of younger egalitarian leaders have gone further. This is something Francis Schaeffer said, that uh, uh, one generation may be able to err a little bit and then keep it tied everywhere else, but then the generation that comes after them is going to go farther in that direction. Um, for example, a number of younger egalitarian leaders have gone further, such as uh, the call to refer to God as mother. And the next generation will go further, for that is the direction toward which evangelical feminism inevitably leads those who adopt an evangelical feminist position buy into an interlocking system of interpretation that will relentlessly erode the authority of Scripture in our churches. So, so the point he's making here, and this is why he's saying not just historically but necessarily egalitarianism is a slippery slope, is that even though some people only, in my judgment right, loosen the authority of Scripture to be egalitarian, but then they stay tied everywhere else. They remain conservative theologically everywhere else. The problem is, is the um, interpretive tools that you need to make the Bible say that egalitarian is true, the type of hermeneutics that you use, is you, you already have all of the hermeneutical tools you need to keep loosening the Bible's authority everywhere else. And so when the culture presses you on different points, uh, subsequent generations are going to cave. And, and that's proven true historically. Questions? All right. My, what's that? Uh, a number of things. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. I, there's no, sh no short answer to that. Emily? Yes. 
yeah, here's a, here's a million dollar question. Uh, how, how can they say that the Bible uh, te doesn't teach complementarianism? Are you going to get to that? Yes. Yes. I, and I'll aim to prove uh, what they say and then, and then uh, why I think they say that. You want to say this into the microphone? No? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree that, um, that that is an example of how um, one, uh, one generation will take the advances of another farther. And I think that there would be a diversity of opinion in this room even as far as if that's, uh, if this is good leaven or bad leaven playing itself out in the church. <laughs> but um, it is an example of creeping influence. Yes. Yes, I did. Yeah. Was was I was is that an example of me <laughs> abdicating my <laughs> responsibility to serve? Sure. Yeah, I won't do that. <laughs> mhm. Mm mhm. It's just a passive kind of disobedience, right? Not doing something is doing something. 
the wrong thing. Okay. Um, if you have questions that you want to ask privately, uh, you, I would I would love to talk to you more about this. You know, Katie would love to talk to you more about this. We love this stuff. We we didn't grow up um, in complementarian churches, and so these uh, these convictions for us are not inherited from our forefathers. They are new and fresh for us, and, and in part because of that, they're very precious to us. So we'd love to, to talk with you if you have any other questions. Uh, but not much right now, um, because church is about to start, okay? Let's pray. God, I thank you that your word is true. I thank you that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I thank you that what your word says is true is also good because you are both true and good. You cannot lie, and it is your nature, um, as we'll see in, in the sermon today, to be good. You cannot be anything other than good. Your design cannot be anything other than good. You say directly in the word that you give your commands for our good. And I pray you would help us not to disbelieve your goodness. God, again, as we leave, I pray that you would help us to be uh, more convinced than we ever have been that complementarianism is true and biblical, and at the same time that you would help us uh, to believe all things and hope all things uh, about those with whom we disagree. God, thank you again for this opportunity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.